you're listening to Taboo, the podcast dedicated to exploring the taboos that make life interesting. I'm Kathy Burke. I'm Terry McInerney. And this episode's Taboo is euthanasia. If there's a shame inside of you, or you seek another We're going light and frothy today, right? No tears. <laughs> um, can't we? We can't actually guarantee that we're not going <laughs> to. Well, I think welling up. There will. I. I'm going to say now. I'm going to cry multiple times during this podcast. Like first Aww. thing on a Sunday morning. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah, Sunday morning. You're sick. Your period is tomorrow. I know. And we just both watched the Louis Theroux documentary. Um, what's it called? Choosing death. Choosing death. Altered states. Um, so good and this is part of his new series you know I'm obsessed with Louis through yeah. his new series I haven't seen the other two there's one going to be about adoption yeah. and one about polyamory which will be good actually definitely very interesting so this one is the euthanasia episode it's on BBC player if anybody is looking to watch it and if you're I in legally if, if you're in it. Ireland because you can't watch BBC player in Ireland you can get it online you can get it sneakily yeah, like Daily Motion, I think is a good streaming. Yeah. Just I'm we're, we're teaching you all how to break the law. But, um, <laughs> I think it's the BBC. It's fine. I actually have a uh, what do they call it? Kind of a plug-in thing that I use called Beebs. Ooh, that I use to watch the BBC over here. Right. Only what works for certain shows, but you know, it's my way of of streaming the BBC. Interesting. Yeah, Brits out. <laughs> BBC in. BBC in. <laughs> it has to be one of the best national broadcasters by far. I know it's so good and they have such good documentaries good, great um, I love how there's no ads just good quality of journalism it's so I do good like the BBC. but listen I'm a fucking wreck after watching that it was me me and Tony sitting on our couch I mean I was sobbing mm. <laughs> now I do wish we had some type of period klaxon like something which I could press and it would just be like <laughs> this is a warning like you don't know if your emotions are really yours or yeah. if they're your uteruses like I skipped out of bed this morning or I jumped out of bed because I was like okay because I was sick on Friday and I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna have energy today I'm gonna be alive and I jumped out of bed felt my boobs be sore and I was like oh <laughs> oh that is yeah that's the biggest indicator for me now as well yeah that I'm you know, new to this ovulation. It's like, oh man, yeah. the three, there's like two or three days. It's like, oh, my it's, bra hurts. It's the impact of just like putting your foot down and being like, I'm going to be, and just on the second bounce, you're like, ah. <laughs> oh, you poor thing. Well, no. It's, Hope we get better soon. I think I'm going to be fine, but it just, I mean, honestly, it's one of the best documentaries I have seen for a long time. I feel like he got really involved in it. Yeah, he was not, um, a, he's not as kind of background watching as he used to be like he's really good at um he's really good at communicating yeah to people in really difficult situations um have you do you listen to adam buxton podcast no um so louis through and him are friends so he's all he's i think he's on like four episodes um and i i think the reason i started listening to adam buxton was just because i wanted to listen to the louis through episodes because i love louis um Ooh. but the way he talks about interviewing is really interesting and how involved you can get 
you know, without wanting to interfere. But I think he can talk to anybody and they just open up to him because you can. he's so understanding. Whether you're somebody who is about to, yeah, like go through euthanasia or assisted suicide or if you're a heroin addict or a sex worker, you know, people all open up, rappers all open yeah. up to him. I love it. Sorry, must be quite so what a bit does rewarding. He, does he say that there is like a technique to it? Because like I do feel as though Louis Thoreau now is so much better than he was when he was younger. I do think he's, I've always enjoyed him. But I do think partly like I watched some of his very early documentaries and there is a sense, sense there's less empathy in them. There's more, I think there is more kind of look at this weird life. And yeah, he's got much weird better. Weekends. I know I've got older as well, so like it's different. But I don't know what what does he say because he he does seem like he's kind of got better and better at it. At least in my opinion, I don't think he really revealed his techniques because Adam had been asking him as well, like um, just you know out of interest, what is, is there a technique and and stuff. His dad was a journalist as well, and he was a travel writer, and he oh. talked about writing his own book, um. He got lots of advice from his dad about how do we put those stories of meeting all these different people into a book. And he did talk about um, talking, focusing more on what people say rather than um, trying to like paint a picture. Yeah. So I don't know if he uses that in his documentary style too, but just like people's words are the focus and rather than kind of speculating. Maybe that's what he does less of now is speculating and not that he ever did. You know, he just kind of lets people speak for themselves and that and present that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the euthanasia one was great, and I I did cry, but in, it it was it was a <laughs> it was kind of not happy, but it's like relief. Yes. When you see somebody following through with that plan, I the fe- hardest hardest plan to make. Well, I felt like for Gus, absolutely. So, do you want to do firstly? Do you want to we'll do a bit of a background into like the stories? There's three stories told in it. Three major stories mm-hmm. told in it. There's like Gus, who's an older man, kind of a hippie, lived in moved from Tesco, te- Texo, Tes- <laughs> Tesco, Texas to California. Fell in love with his wife when he was 14. Has two oh. twin daughters. Is incredibly interesting mu- musician, full of empathy, and he gets pancreatic cancer stage four and is told he's got six months to live. And mm-hmm. he had been uh, in restrepe. Rest- he was in medicine, right? So he didn't want to die the way he'd seen other people died and what had happened to the family. And then there's Deborah, who had been through a traumatic, um, like a car crash. She had a brain injury and she was in a wheelchair. And she had, um, she lived in this beautiful house, with an amazing view, lived with her husband and he was her carer. And he died five months, months ago and she was completely alone with no money. And if she hadn't had chosen to end her own life, she would have ended up in state care um, because she didn't have the money. She would have lost her house and that would have been her reality. And she was going through dementia or dementia like symptoms, which can be yeah. from that. And then the last story was, um, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the mother, the mother who had cancer. Oh, um, I had a oh, sugar. It's just bl- blanked through me. She was mother of two young boys. Well, not two. I think it was like 12 and 10. Laurie? Is that Laurie? Laurie? That sounds right. Laurie, yeah. I wrote down loads of details about her, but not about her name. I don't the know names. why. Yeah. Um, but basically she had um, this cancer where she kept being told that she had six months to live. And in um, certain places, you have a right to die within six months to live. And she had this choice to take her life if she felt like she wasn't getting better and she was going to die terribly. She did suffer depression during that time. And she also had um, 
the big thing for her is that she'd gone through chemotherapy and she had rebounded in some ways and it was kind of like how her husband and her two sons and everything and how she was dealing with it. So it was about whether she was going to do it or not. But they were the three stories. And she was very different to the previous two because, well, in my mind, because she did have young children. Yeah. Um, well, was it just a one son? Or was two sons, son? yeah. Two. Um, so like, and, and a husband, you know, and, and she was so much younger than the others. Oh, God. So the her, I think hers was a harder decision to make because she was constantly, and she was really open with her son. Her, she had a young son and he was so smart. He was, remember he was, he did like a drawing of the it boom It was a great drawing. As, yeah, it was brilliant. Um, so, and she was very open and discussing that with, with him about her illness and the possibility of assisted suicide. In the end, actually I don't want to do much ending. Should I do spoilers or no? About her. Okay, we're going to say spoiler now. And yeah. um, if you want to s- listen, um, how will we say? We're, we're going to talk. Okay, we're, I'm going to look at the time right now. And we're going to talk <laughs> for another, f- no more than four minutes about this. Okay. Oh, yeah. Is that fair enough? Skip ahead. Okay. Perfect. So skip ahead four minutes if you don't want a spoiler. Perfect. All right. So she, in the end, she did die from natural causes, it said yeah. at the end of the documentary. Um, so it meant that because she said three and a half years ago she was given six months to live yeah so she kind of kept having to get kind of inf- um, what's it kind of a search from her doctor saying okay yeah again you're eligible again for yeah. assisted suicide it was, it's um, Hand of Life Options Act oh was, yeah is the name of the one in California that the other people are entitled to if you have six months six months or less left yeah AB 15 yeah, six yes, months of um, qualified so that was right the to one. die. Um, but yeah, hers was very sad because she, uh, you could just tell that her husband kept wanting her to try with, to try and her son did too. And I mean, at least she, she had the option if she wanted to use it. I think that was the, the main point of, that she wanted to keep making was at least it's there for her. Yeah. But like, so this is assisted suicide, right? In that the whole basis of this is, and I think the euthanasia and assisted suicide are different and will probably like, this is covering both, not not just euthanasia. Because I didn't even realise there's a fucking difference. <laughs> Between assisted suicide and euthanasia? Yeah, because... What's the difference? Well, it depends. There's loads of different definitions, but assisted suicide is basically, isn't the biggest thing about it, is that somebody can do it themselves. Whereas euthanasia can actually be done by somebody else. By a doctor or by somebody else. Yeah. Okay. So there's like, there is different definitions of it. Um, and in some places it's the same thing and in some places it's not. Like, it's... it's active and passive. That's what yeah, I definitely. understood. And I didn't, I didn't understand, like, the Gus... The, the Deborah one for me was the one that fucked me up beyond anything. Yeah. Because I feel because... like... But like for Gus, you know, and for um Laurie, I'm sorry if we got her name wrong. I'm so sorry. Um... I'll they, Google it now while you're talking. Yeah, they kind of had like, yeah, I'd, I'd hate to get her name, but they kind of ha- were in a situation where they were waiting to die, right? Um, I felt like for Deborah, she was not going to necessarily die. She just had no one to look after her and she had no money. And the reality is she was going to go from a beautiful house after her only, like, life, her life partner died and and her carer. And because she would not get support, her reality was essentially going into state care, which would be a tiny room and could be, for her, was seen as a prison. 
She said it was going to cost her between five and six thousand dollars well, a month. Well, that's well. for if you had money. So do you remember Louis Theroux was like, oh, but there's these facilities. She she oh, said, yeah. I can't afford that. So the reality would have been state care, which is not what he was suggesting. They okay. And she, she saw one as having a quality of life and not. And what fucked me up was Gus and the other lady were in a situation where they were going to die. It is Laurie. Laurie. Oh, oh, thank God. Yeah. Laurie. Um, they were going to die because they were, you know, they had family around them. They were choosing to do it. They had support. It was about kind of having the choice to do something. Whereas for her, if her... She had nobody. If her, yeah, she had nobody. And that's why I felt like Louis Thoreau was kept asking her questions because it was almost like he felt like he had a responsibility to do it because nobody else was. That's true. And the, the two people that they call her exit guides who are the people who they don't assist with her death but they talk to her about her options and she had to buy all the stuff herself the mm-hmm. the medication and stuff but they said like at the last few months of her life they were her best friends because she didn't have anybody else to talk to that's that is the saddest part about that i always i always get so upset when i think of people who don't have friends you know yeah um because then yeah i mean why would you really want to be around when you are suffering and you have no quality of life and you have no love. She said that she thought she had broken heart syndrome without yeah. her partner, which again, I mean, I don't even know what that feels like, but awful, I presume. And she also believed in heaven. So she, she, I think she believed in afterlife. She said she wants, she was, she believed she was going to see her partner again. Yeah. Like that's, that's exactly it. It's like, mm-hmm. so she goes, so her reality is she dies and she sees her partner again and she knows what's going to happen to her. Her other reality is she loses her house. She loses everything. She gets put in somewhere. She's got like dementia like like symptoms. So dementia like symptoms start being start happening. But she's also got moments of clarity. She's what if she's in a place she's not happy? What if something's happening to her that she can't control? Like that could be that that's essentially could be torture. Yeah. And I think that is the scariest thing about like a, a psychiatric or a mental. um prop like you know like a basically anything to do with dementia and and alzheimer's where you feel so out of control she that she kept saying i don't want to lose myself yeah i don't okay we've passed four minutes now so we don't do any <laughs> right. spoiler stuff but anyway watch um, it so welcome it is, back this has got us on the edge there's going to be tears because of that documentary <laughs> yeah yeah so and i think i'm the reason we wanted to do euthanasia is because i knew that this documentary is coming out and it's an issue that i mean it used to be a taboo um, I don't really know if it is a taboo um, at the moment. So I did a Twitter well, poll illegal. today. Exactly. It's, it's illegal in Ireland, isn't it? Yeah. Um, although, so when we're talking about the different types of euthanasia, there was active and passive, right? And I was, I had no idea what the distinctions were. Mm-hmm. So active is the one that would be illegal. So for example, when a person is killed by being given an overdose, of painkillers or something where passive euthanasia is when death is brought around by just letting someone die like by withdrawing treatment yeah withholding treatment so i think that is passive in ireland i wouldn't can i if somebody is like because where that line is so i don't know if i consider that euthanasia if somebody is like going to die anyway unless they're giving medicine Mm-hmm. because I think that is what we're talking about or at least in my mind assisted suicide I know I listen I know this might not actually be the definition but so if somebody's going to die anyway and they choose no I don't want um, chemotherapy because it's making me so sick I literally don't know where I am as mm-hmm. opposed to like taking something that causes death 
Does exactly, that- yeah. So in, in my head, yeah, I never would have associated, you know, t- turning off my machine. Yes, because that people um, have DNR and stuff, which is like, do not resuscitate. And like, you can choose. I think I'd have that. Like, if there's any oh, risk yeah. of coma, DNR, you know, like, it's a different. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I think it's fairer for yourself to take on that responsibility and decide, you know, DNR rather than leaving it up to your family to decide because uh, what a horrible decision for your family to have to make. I think it's a kinder thing to to make those decisions, you know, yourself. Yeah. Because if you go into a coma, imagine how hard that is for your loved ones to be like, what do we do? Yeah. Because they're always going to make the decision. They go, surely they want to see you again. So it's like when you have to get a pet put down. I know it's not the same at all, but we had two pets put down this year and... The first was the dog and my, uh, it took my dad, I think, like two weeks to decide. And my mom straight away was like, Panda has to get put down. She had, um, she just wasn't eating. She couldn't digest any food. Um, and she was just very ill. Mm. Um, I think it was a liver, liver and kidney thing. Yeah. Um, Shauna, if you're listening, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but um, the, so dad found it really hard and it, it took him a while to just make the decision. But he kept saying to me on the phone, like, the only reason I don't want to get to put down is selfish because I just want to I want to see the dog I want her to be here but it's not the kind thing to do yeah so he had to make he had to come to terms with it first so so I'm sure it's even harder for obviously for a human being well like what is your okay again I think this is a topic that I would love to talk to somebody who had experience of it and um, and I'm not talking about the medical side I mean I don't mean the like somebody dying in a kind of medical situation I mean the act of if somebody chose to to, to go with euthanasia you know mm-hmm. but, I mean, we can only talk about how we think we'd feel I think definitely it's oh, different I, um, I read a reddit thing today yeah. actually which is kind of good I like just searched reddit for like euthanasia ask me anything and it was a girl oh she no, it doesn't say it there uh, oh it's a girl her name is Patricia um, but she said that her friend had a brain tumour and she decided to do she's in Washington which is mm-hmm. one of the places that it's legal in America Oregon. so she elected for a physician assisted suicide and um, so she did uh, in her friend's living room. They watched. They were watching Shaun of the Dead. I remember her saying, <laughs> and they're holding hands. And everyone was asking like, your own questions about it, which I think was really good insight into like having to do that with your friend. And she said like she doesn't regret anything. Obviously, what watching the person deteriorate dramatically that was the worst bit about it. But the actual passing was peaceful and she was 100% ready to go and it was what she wanted like and so that so the death wasn't the sad bit it was the months or years of suffering beforehand that is a sad bit I just yeah I like I um I've never been uh, I've always been of the opinion that if I got Alzheimer's bring me out the back and kill me if you can and my mother always says yeah we always joke about in our family that we bring out the back you know and shoot us I know it's always a joke it's always like a quite morbid (laughs) joke but my mom always says that and she's like she knows that's not legal then um like never DNR never like give me anything that's going to keep me alive when I'm don't have full capacity never if I if I do get Alzheimer's also do feel comfortable about putting me straight into a home put me straight into a fucking home and never feel guilty about that like I think if you've that's something that's really prevalent in our family. And obviously my mom being the nurse, she used to care for everyone. So we would go up to nursing homes. You know, my, my granddad had it. Um, most of his family had it. His, mm-hmm. my aunt, my granny's um, sister um, had it. And, and same with Parkinson's and things. And they're so, 
incapacitating and I think there's a big difference I know people are like oh they also think of old people being in a home and not knowing and being scared but Mm. just this romantic sometimes I think with Alzheimer's there's like this thing where it's like because a lot of people when they get Alzheimer's also get quite difficult oh of course yeah yeah and And they're not themselves you can't predict their their actions as well you know and this idea that like you play a bit of music and they come back you know there's Mm. there's moments of that you know like my granddad used to only let my granny the only person he'd eat for is my granny when she'd feed him but the reality of the disease like it really makes me question when people are being kept alive when they have alzheimer's yeah who's it for i don't i don't understand that because i i I don't and i know people say oh it's a slippery slope but i'm like i don't know if it is i really don't know the slippery slope argument yeah i didn't i don't really get the slippery slope argument so i only again only heard that phrase today but it is like the kind of counter euthanasia argument that if we if we legalize it it's gonna more and more and more people are gonna do it every year and it's gonna be out of control but i mean you can't just that's just a hypothesis i don't know if that's you can't really prove that that's going to happen. Should probably just say, by the way, because I know people who have Alzheimer's um, currently. Obviously, not everybody should be put into a home or no. or <laughs> killed. No, but we're there talk- is yeah, very advanced stages, and only my experience. Yeah, pe- and pe- people basically should have the right to do that if they want to, mm-hmm. because uh, it's it's they say it's a decision that you have to make while you're you know fully in your you're fully capacitated you know you have a sound mind yeah and you're strong enough to do it yourself like i was one of the things that they said yeah i would so let's because if you ask yourself that question right so if if i was in a situation where i knew i was getting alzheimer's and i i know Mm -hmm. what the end point looks like and that you can live Mm -hmm. for five to ten years not having not being able to feed yourself wash yourself do anything not being the person like not being able to speak losing every ability to do everything Mm -hmm. I would choose to die I would choose to die and I I think like I thought it was really interesting with your one Deborah the way she like sent letters to everyone put a note on the door locked the door said don't come in because if you choose suicide someone is being traumatized by that exactly yeah and that was such a good so they call that her discovery yeah so like okay I know I'm going to do this she sent letters to what the police and to some friend or she had a friend coming over to pick up something and she left a, locked the door and left a note on the door saying call the whatever the police or the ambulance or stuff. Um, yeah, because you have to think who's going to find me. Yeah. And that's not fair on them. That is the problem when you think about euthanasia. My biggest fear is and if I knew again, this is just my personal thing, same as you, if I knew that that was going to happen to me, I would 10 times out of 10 choose to end my own life rather mm-hmm. than put myself and my family through possibly years of, of suffering mm-hmm. um, because it's hard to watch you like what someone you love just deteriorate in front of you but then for also to take yourself away from them yeah. is also kind of ha- hard to contemplate because they're the ones who are who are left when you're gone you know who but do they would they rather see you suffer I don't think so I don't think my parents would want to see me suffer but it's also it, it's it's about it's the decision. It's it's such a personal decision. But the mm. the fact that like like what you're saying there about like so for me something like I've never really lived through somebody going through cancer. So there might be a stage of just not knowing. Does that make sense? So it would just be a exactly, case of yeah. just whatever happens happens, right? Because obviously mm-hmm. there's been cancer in my family, but I've never seen someone 
that close. I, I don't know. But Alzheimer's, I feel like I know. So there would be a choice. And yeah. I think that for most people, there's, it's not an option in Ireland, so it's not a choice. But this really made me think <laughs> about the mm -hmm. Alzheimer's option and made me think, God, I hope to God it is for, for if I get it. You know, I really hope it is an option. Yeah, if you get that. And that's, I'm the same where I have a hereditary thing of Alzheimer's in my dad's family. So his dad and, uh, and other relations um, who have it. And yeah, like it, it's, it would be nice to know that there is that option because you want to be able to die in dignity. I think that's just thinking that we should be able to do. Yeah. Because you make choices throughout your whole life, you know, free will and all that. Why, why is death the, the only thing that you're not allowed to do? Um, if you are terminal, you know, everyone who you know gets cancer is going to is given a terminal sentence from it. Yeah. But then, I also read people saying, to be honest, everybody is terminal. We're all going to die. Ah, it's different though. That's yeah, like that's exactly. semantics, isn't it? Really, like as in, <laughs> it's a grammar. It's a grammar <laughs> thing rather than something else. Can I can I throw a couple of curveballs? Because you know, just uh, also we should speak a little bit about the history of it. Because, of course, the first, well, not the first time, but it's been in a lot of different religions. But um, specifically, the word is from the old Greeks, which is really typical. Yeah. Um, but it's, I didn't, um, I didn't understand that in some parts of like Greek history, there was this thing of that it was doctors jobs to make the person better. And if you didn't make them better to help them die, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, That's one that goes against the Hippocratic oath well, that we have today. Hypocrisies, which I swear to God, I've tried to say that so many times, right? And I cannot, I've said it, I said it, say it to me. His name? Hippocrates? Hippocrates. Hippocrates. Isn't it spelled the same as hypocrites? Yes. Um, which is confusing <laughs> that's not I just look at it I'm like hippocrates um, but hippocrates he um, he spoke out against it and he was like okay. that's not right and then there was this but then a lot of people don't think he used that sorry so he had this where he's like I will not prescribe a deadly drug to please somebody nor give any advice and um, that may cause his death noting there is some debate in literature about whether or not this is intended to encompass encompass euthanasia but this could have been about something else different. It could have been about somebody who was um, not ne necessarily fully healthy, but that this idea of in Greek times, it was used in a negative fashion and that we're taking, we're applying Greek uh, logic to modern day logic, which wouldn't have been the same thing. So it's like the Bible. Exactly. That they Medicine just interpreted changed. It, yeah, this kind of way. Um, and then it came back up with Francis Bacon, who was in uh, British, uh, in Britain, and he was like philosopher, statesman, scientist, all this kind of thing. And he talked about euthanasia and how it was so unfair to essentially, he was a scientist and he all be always believed in being very sceptical in your method methodology, which is why he's called the father of methodology or scientific methodology, even though obviously loads of shit changed and it's very different. But like this idea of not being, not abandoning people in death, you know? Yeah. That giving them something to allow them to kind of get through it. Okay, so what, fuck, anyway, that's all. And then Age of Enlightenment and suicide and euthanasia and that all comes up and all that kind of fun stuff. But curveball, two things, mm -hmm. two things that like made me go, maybe I'm just not thinking about this in, I'm not thinking about it enough. And because I already probably had my mind made up. Is, exactly. And the two things that are, well, one of the things that's used over and over again is the Nazi euthanasia program. I have seen that in a few articles that I read that that is part of their like quote unquote um, the slippery slope. Yes. Which is also might I add this is the kind of thing that was used in line with abortion as well. 
Which, so that this is something that could be used for evil. Yeah. Is that the... Yes, that basically it was mm. for... They say it's state-sponsored and that um, people consented. They don't believe that they consented, the parents consented. But that basically uh, it was 300,000 mentally ill and physically handicapped people were killed um, through the euthanasia centre. Okay, and was that and, uh, sorry, voluntary? That was a, no, hold on. It was 1,800 people through the centre. And then um, after that, it was 300,000 overall. And that the reason given was that they didn't deserve to be alive, that they weren't well enough to be alive. And that is that is the issue that I the one issue that would get my back up about it. Yeah, is some people might look at physically or mentally um, disabled people and think, oh, they are candidates for euthanasia when I don't think that that's the case at all that's not well in my head how I would look at euthanasia it is for suffering people okay other cr- curveball and you have to answer me both about these because this is the other one that fucked me up and I really need to know oh. what you think about it so listen to a podcast BBC called Assignments and it's about so obviously in the Netherlands um, euthanasia is legal it's about yeah. a gr- woman who has severe um severe mental illness anxiety borderline personality disorder she's 29 and she gets euthanasia bar that perfect like mental illness and 83 people were killed in 2017 by euthanasia due to mental health in In the netherlands yes wow that's high though isn't it it is high because i had seen when i was looking up the netherlands the rates here it is um Something like three point seven percent of deaths uh, in the last couple of years were from euthanasia, which is extremely high. I thought. But are you? Yes. But I don't know what the. I don't know. So. But are we not? Are we not devaluing? Are we not devaluing mental illness by saying somebody is living with suffering their whole life, but then mm. if they're living for suffering and they were healthy beforehand, that suffering is actually something they can't live with. But we're just saying, yeah, no, you're sick. You live with it. That's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So if. I don't know. Yeah. Because if someone turned around and she was 29 and said, just like me, you know, uh, very lucky in her health. And then all of a sudden next year it's crippling depression or mental illness, um, borderline personality disorder and stuff that that you feel like it's overwhelming and euthanasia should be an option. To put you out of your suffering. But yeah, if somebody has had it their whole life, why is it different? Like, oh, well, she knows how to put up with it because she's had it for 29 years. But it is that right? Yeah. Like it, why is that? We're just prolonging that pain? Yeah. But I then she could get, like... She could get, would you get... How do you, Yeah, you could get better. But there's been people... Maybe she hasn't been to, given the right services yet. But, but, but then also think about Deborah. Why is it okay for Deborah? So, like, I think mm. the um, Netherlands has a pretty good health system. Um, oh yeah I found that so far you know and the difference is is so in medicine we believe that somebody can be made feel better so they're offered every service but the reality is in the states they have a shit medical care system (laughs) so Mm. like people might not be getting full um, medical care and they might not have a choice and yet we would say that's okay you've got six months to live you're terminal do it but like people are killing themselves all the time for this reason that's what suicide is or for some people sometimes they're not getting access so this g- girl, the 
that case um you should she yeah she, she could have just taken her own life in a non-assisted way but she felt like so she knew she knew where she was going where she got her ashes scattered which was looking over this river and um, she said mm. she would have jumped out to but she made the point that if she killed herself someone else was going to have trauma that's that's true and i think yeah. she also she wanted this person to interview her it was really important and she did youtube and she gave like she told talked to people about it because in her mind and I like I'm just paraphr- paraphrasing. I'd highly recommend everyone listen to a BBC um uh assignment about euthanasia, and it's about aerial. Ar- oh God! Or <laughs> oh God! I can't say her name. I'm sorry. That was a nervous laugh. Um, but about this uh, woman, Ariel Bowers, which I've said her name wrong. Sorry. Um, but she wanted people to know about it because in her mind, she had had this. She had crippling and she had multiple, multiple mental health issues and it was crippling her. She was constantly in pain and she wanted to choose her own life and she wanted to be able to avail of the things somebody else would be able to available, available if they had cancer. And I just wonder if there was that sense of just, I want people to know that this is okay and I shouldn't have to do it in shame. Yeah, that this, I want people to know that this is a reality and the mental suffering is just as bad as physical suffering but then again sorry because this really fucked me up because like it's the same thing with deborah where it's like are people getting access to the right things but also i I can't help but feel like this argument it kept reminding me of the abortion argument because Mm, the value of life not the value it was more the 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 difference between reality and the ideal so for example if somebody um got pregnant and they're in abusive relationship or they don't have any services and the argument is by people who are pro-life i hate using that phrase fucking for forcing people into pregnancy and they would say oh well the society isn't looking after that woman Mm -hmm. so therefore if she was giving the right thing she'd choose to have a baby and the abortion is the easy way out Mm -hmm. but then the uh, the alternative is forced pregnancy right and this is what i feel like for me it comes down to is even if those people aren't being given the right things you can't force them through the pain because you think it's a better option that's really yeah because hypothetically let's say this woman was given all the right services and then she did decide that she wanted to have a baby well that's that's a hypothetical situation yeah. the reality is that she it doesn't have access to those services and abortion is the humane thing to do and i think that that's sure. a gray area yeah. Yeah, because it is it is all hypotheticals when you're talking about it's only when you look at these concrete uh, stories like the ones in the documentary or on the podcast that you get a glimpse into the reality of how these things play out. I thought it was really interesting when actually seeing the kind of cocktail of of chemicals or or stuff that the people were given. Yeah. Um in the documentary there was they had to take like a, an anti-nausea tablets mm-hmm. two hours before they were going to t- take the other the life ending stuff and then they said it was a white powder then that you mixed with apple juice and and drank that um i don't know how long they say it takes for it to kick in because i think one He's, of them went on for quite a long time yeah well it said normally an hour and but sometimes it can take up to 24 which i thought was so interesting like you think yeah because it depends on your body then i suppose yeah but like wouldn't you much rather just yeah, drink a uh, you know, an apple juice with the mixed with a powder, rather than 
if there was a, a kind of a, a gruesome way of taking your own life that would leave your family traumatized. But that's that was the whole thing. Like, like shooting yourself in the head or something. Yeah. Like, like so. Oh, God. Because. Oh, so grim, Terry. <laughs> OK, I know, I know, I know. And for a Sunday morning, like I'm just going to go have a whale of a time. Just have a cry. But can I ask one other question, right? Because all of those. Mm. That all makes sense to me that it's like, okay, you're choosing to do it because it's a reality of a situation. Okay. Do we run the risk? And I think this is the one question I would have that I don't know the answer to. And I don't know how this is cared for. Mm. Do we run the run the risk of getting to a point where if people are draining time or resources, euthanasia it, it flips the other way. Will be prescribed. Or you're judged if you don't do it. Like, oh, you're a burden to the system. Yeah, because already but, we've got a system mm. that doesn't care for vulnerable people. And oh, yeah. that's my only concern is now it, you look at places like the Netherlands and there are places of like, people where it seems to be, no, this is when people choose to or it's happening anyway. And like the vulnerable people are dying anyway and that this is actually doing it in a way where it's giving people access, you know, and support. But there are people with really strong, they're, they've got quite strong, you know, medical structures in place. Like where does this, when this becomes acceptable in other places? No, because uh, I don't know. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Do we devalue life by making life. it more efficient? Killing people. Yeah, it's like more efficient to just kill people off when they become a, a burden to the system. That was one thing I was, I came into my head like, what if, again, this is just like a hypothesis, what if euthanasia is, is legal and acceptable everywhere? Wouldn't it be handier for insurance companies in the States, you know, where, where they have a huge control over the medical system to, when somebody is diagnosed with a terminal illness, to push for you know to push doctors to prescribe euthanasia instead of actually giving their clients money yeah from an insurance claim to pay for years of treatment exactly and surely it'll be so much cheaper and that that, but that's like 300 quid that's exactly where my mind went it went to places Mm. where they've commodified medical care where people are like you've got it you've got a system in america um, and i'm sorry to reference america but i think it's really relevant where basically you've got a nation of people who are dying from opiate overdoses that were prescribed by doctors and that's why the streets Mm. are being flooded with these pills and then if you get to the point where that's legal does that then become commodified in the way you just described exactly that that's what would worry me and i don't think it would worry me in in europe where doctors aren't being you know where they aren't being sponsored by um by drug companies you know drug companies don't don't uh, kind of uh yes, they, you know, have you seen the yeah yeah exactly like look yeah. what's happening with the NHS. Louis Theroux, another louis theroux one was the medicated kids documentary from a few years ago where doctors would be so quick to prescribe medication for kids like ritalin or um you know stuff for adhd and for attention any kind of attention disorders because you know they're they're paid like they're they're paid to prescribe these things <laughs> so I don't know about because I don't when I went to Canada when I was I think I was nine when I moved to Canada for a year and uh that was the first time that we had ever even heard of these um these medications that all the kids were on 
my dad was a teacher there and there was loads of kids in his class who were on all these medications like Ritalin and um, concentration drugs. And what's, what's the ones, you know, the Xanax and stuff. Yeah. Like these were primary school kids who were prescribed things. And this is Canada, so I don't know what it's like in America. Um, but it just shocked us. I'm sure it was these drugs were doing their job and I'm sure they were helping them. Because their parents probably wouldn't put them on it otherwise. But uh, when you watch the Louis Theroux medicated kids documentary, there it, it made me really think there has to be other ways around tackling a troubled child just because your child is hyper, you know, well, giving them yeah. drugs. Well, there's like two different ways, right? So there's people who need drugs, and there is people who don't, and then there's people who are getting drugs who don't need drugs, <laughs> you know. And like if a doctor in, says to you, "I think you should take this," you know, you tend yeah. to believe them. You do believe them, and also the other side of things. So wasn't there, you know, there's the big thing as in, so in America, say for in, in certain places, you know, as a kid being fed, and I know it's a stupid thing, but they said this in this documentary, and I thought it was the Louis Thoreau one, where they're talking about diet. So a kid is getting fed sugar the whole time, mm. and then he's being told he's hyper. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I think I think nutrition in children is like so important. But that like um, the things like that, as simple as that. You know, but like that, but this is, I think that the, what you're saying about the Ritalin is a, is a really good point though, because you're not necessarily saying that medication isn't incredibly important and can't be incredibly effective for people, but you're mm-hmm. saying in the manner in which it's prescribed. So yeah. it's the exact same thing where people are giving out opiates um, and then people are getting addicted to them because they're essentially heroin. Yeah, those are <laughs> And then the damage is done. Yeah. And like, what if that happens with euthanasia where it's like, are that's your policies killed, um, that's what killed mac miller wasn't it um i thought he was yeah it was fentanyl. cocaine fentanyl yeah and, and cocaine yeah but like he didn't want to die but these are painkillers that are so strong it's like it's like you're on heroin for days um it, it, it's, it's mad isn't it that they so the fentanyl the big thing is that it started they do think as well that fentanyl is being cut into coke and that people are Jesus. not realizing they're taking it but the big thing about it is that it lowers it's so dangerous because you can't you you keep having to up the dose and that illegal versions of it are uh, are appearing on the street and they're the ones that are incredibly dangerous yeah i heard that's one of the easiest drugs to overdose on because it just the quantities are so are they have to be obviously very specific and if you go a tiny bit over your your body can't handle it we're gotten so off topic right now but i think it's i I think it's good to kind of think of, of euthanasia it's as as medical medical care that can be prescribed and i'm sure some of the arguments at the anti euthanasia arguments would be using this as a as a reasoning because it could be you know in the wrong in the wrong hands like like a nazi hand yeah <laughs> uh, i'm sure it could be used badly do you know nothing about uh kevorkian no what is that oh my what God, is that kevorkian. incredible word i've never even heard <laughs> it's a doctor dr jack kevorkian um, who, and I actually only heard of his name the first time from watching Seinfeld they made like some reference to a doctor uh, a bad doctor uh, being Kevorkian Kevorkian was I think like the American uh, champion for a patient's right to die like a terminal patient's right to die by a uh, phys- physician assisted suicide but he um, this was like in the 80s or 90s no 90s he was convicted for murder um, for he was, I think he was sentenced to twenty five years. Ooh. For where is it here now? So he just okay. Here we go. I had written down. 
Um, Kevorkian assisted in the deaths of 130 terminally ill people between 1990 and 1998. Um, in each of these cases, the individuals allegedly took the final action, um, which themselves. And so he had been tried a few times and was acquitted because, the, you know, there was no proof that he killed anybody. He'd like he'd made his own uh, machines um, that he would make it as easy as possible for the person. So they would just literally have to press a button and the chemicals would be um, released into their systems to end their own life. Um, mm. He called them like the, he called it the death machine, the Thanatron. <laughs> he probably um, should have got a different name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the reason why he was convicted, and it's funny because we just watched a documentary about euthanasia. He was convicted because CBS did a 60 Minutes um, about Kevorkian and he let, let them air this videotape that he made in 98, which showed him um, uh, doing like a voluntary euthanasia on somebody with Lou Gehrig's disease, losing his like final years or his final days. And um, your man gave his consent to do this and Bukhanvorkian himself administered the lethal, lethal injection. So since it was on videotape and then it was aired, he was um, charged with second degree murder. And he, he only served eight years of his 25 year sentence. But like, I think that was a really big, like when you talk about euthanasia, you have to mention Kevorkian because then mm. he, ha- he was like a champion of it. But as soon as he came out from prison, he wasn't allowed um care for anybody who was ill or he couldn't practice medicine on, anymore or anything like that but i think it kind of like set the set the conversation um among people in america especially you know talking about people's right to die and dignity and death and stuff he's uh, he passed away uh, a couple of years ago i think um Jesus. from natural causes but uh in his 80s but uh yeah i think like he i think some of his practices weren't very very well done because he was doing it illegally you know it wasn't legal and he was still doing it illegally and um when he was sentenced the judge at the time said something like um like this isn't this trial isn't a referendum whereas we have to practice yeah. the law that's in state so that's why he's he was convicted because it, it's against the law so of course he he should have been tried because but but still, it's it's you know it's a good debate topic, isn't it? One of those things that people always talk about in, in secondary school debate. Well, <laughs> but like that's the okay. So, question for you. Mm. Um. So as so say for example, we've been talking about a theory. Where we're saying, oh, we think we would do it, and it should happen. But then the realities are the mechanics mechanics of how it happens. How robust that system of testing and minding and looking after and retesting is is crucial. What about the people who do it? So like that, mm. like I looked up in the um, in the documentary, there was a group that helped people or not helped people, but they were final exit and they were the people who were mm. there. And that is an Australian organization. Now, they're all oh. voluntary and it's a charity. It's a not for profit and um, not charity, but it's a not for profit. And they clearly see their role as helping people who have no other option. Okay. Mm. but like there is that there is also you know there's angels of mercy serial killers yeah <laughs> oh yeah and that's definition terrifying. right is they're mostly nurses or carers mm-hmm. and they're people who are in situations and they see themselves as doing an act which is you know the ultimate final act and they're often the most prolific they're hugely prolific as serial killers wasn't one like the most prolific serial killer was an irish woman who was an angel of death in america 
No way, oh, really? Uh, oh my yeah. god, can we do what, another Irish celeb? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I'd heard a reference in an episode of um, My Favorite Murder. But yeah, she's Irish, like uh, immigrant who was a nurse in America. And okay, it's, it's it's there's such a crossover there, isn't there, between yeah. A, so how would you? Me- well, how would you find killing it? old people? Like what you've just talked about there, that guy could have been either he could be the how we've talked about it and said it is it should be a right. He sees himself as being ahead of what the laws are, and he's mm. probably right in a way. If he'd done this in different states, he might have been okay. Well, they have to be able to do it themselves. I think that's a fundamental part of it, but like. Well, in America anyway, he sees himself in doing that. But like, what if he was just an angel of mercy getting off on it? But not yeah, thinking exactly. he's getting off on it because in his head, he thinks he's doing the ultimate thing. I think that's what a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Angel of mercy. Sorry, angel of death. Um, the angel. Yeah, that maybe that was probably a lot of the backlash against him because I think he was quite misunderstood in the 90s um, because people might think he's enjoying this. Yeah. Because you don't know, and and who was that man? Who was that English scumbag? Um, that doctor in England. Oh, Harold Shipman. Yeah, like he was a no. He's a fucking. He and was he a butcher. preyed on older people. Yeah, well, like so I that think, nobody suspected. But he got money. Like it was he was he was monetary. Like that's that's one thing that kind of it was really funny when I saw those final exit people. I was like, do they get paid for that? And like straight away yeah. looked it up and I felt different about it when it was voluntary. But then I was like, hold on a second, they're existing in the edges and nobody, because it's not legal, nobody's actually regulating them. So there is like, is there an angel of death walking around persuading people to do something? And like, how is anyone regulating the fact that that's happening? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, and who gets, who gets um, to vet these people? No one, because they don't exist, apparently. Yeah, really. Yeah, exactly. They're under the radar. You know, you can't, you can't pay taxes, surely, if you're, you know, assisting people's suicides. Yeah, fuck, fucking hell. Like that's. I think that's a really. Oh, I think that's a good point, Kathy. You yeah. kind of connected the dots there. That's made me like. I'm not sure. But I, it's the people in the Louis documentary. I know we keep referencing it, but the ones who were the exit guides, um, that couple. I don't know if there were a couple, but there's a man and a woman. They seemed so genuine when after um, Deborah died that they felt like they, you know, they really did help her. Well, they they definitely did. But like how many things have been done genuinely by good people who are doing terrible things? Like, yeah, I don't necessarily like that's why I would think like how people die and how they're looked after. It's it's the same idea as people doctors and nurses like I don't all doctors and nurses should have the opportunity they shouldn't be forced to but they should be able to go to like counseling and they should be treated for the trauma they're going through because they're probably going through trauma on the daily right and it's such a standard thing that we take for granted that our lives don't inherently involve immediate trauma of people and like if somebody has to kill somebody that's their job how does that happen and how does it happen in a in a pot positive not positive but in a way that is civilized way yeah yeah. like now but saying that I think it is like I've definitely seen people like my granny had a big cyst in her stomach Mm. um, and it it has a particular name I can't remember the name of it and she had had quite a lot of different things she was sick lots of different things Um, and then she died and she kind of knew it was going to burst 
and she made the decision not at all to treat it and then she knew it was going to burst at some stage over the next six to months to a year and then when it did burst she had 24 hours um unfortunately my aunt missed her by like 10 hours she was coming from america but everyone else i had an hour or like half an hour where i sat with my granny and she gave out to me for crying and she said do not cry i had an incredible life i am so happy and i love you so much you know and that and was, is the that's the ideal way to die. like if we could all go like that that would be amazing but getting to you have you know time to talk to your loved ones and contemplate it and then go rather than you know when none of us really know how we're going to die i know and like if it's but it did re- really make me think when i saw like w- both what she had she was lucky with what she actually had but mm. what gus had i would like to choose that exactly i'm sorry spoiler yeah. But, Spoiler, yeah, Gus dies. Yeah, um, well, it's but, kind of told in the documentary. But I mean, I would, I realised, like, we were just sitting there and I realised I had this, like, moment where I was like, fuck, like, I know you can't control that and you should never seek to. Because obviously you could just fall, you know, get knocked down by a car and all that kind of stuff. But if you did have a choice, right, because of this, like, you're going to die horribly or you're not, with your family around you, fuck me, I know what I'd like to choose. I was like, shit, that's a real, that's a good aim. Yeah, like being able to almost plan your death like you'd plan anything else in your life um and it's like the last thing you'd get to have control of it it probably it must be the best part about that about about euthanasia because obviously it's very sad for everyone else involved to watch the person you love die in front of you but but to do it together uh, yeah knowing that you know oh well this is what they chose it's not like, oh, you know, they got knocked down by a bus. That was not what they wanted. But this is what this person wanted. That's what I think, you know, it's so different. Now, would you separate out? The, so for me, it wouldn't be for me. It would be like, I'm, I'm going to die terribly. Sorry. Oh, my God. I'm going to die terribly or I'm or I'm going to choose to die. Like, I wouldn't necessarily be like, OK, when I'm 80, I'm just going to pull the plug or when I'm 70. Do you know what I mean? Like, for me, it would have mm. to be like a choice between painful death that's going to be really awkward for everybody yeah exactly and, ha- and has to la- last a long time would you would you have the same thing or would you say because it's it is a question would you just say okay if i get to 80 and i've had a good life i'm gonna that's interesting <laughs> because i had been thinking i don't know why i was sitting at home contemplating death but it was <laughs> it was last week and i was like just had it in my head i think i woke up you know from a death dream so like i was thinking about it in the morning and i was like mm, you know i don't know how i'm gonna die and there's so many different ways to die, obviously, you know, endless different types of ways that I could die. Um, and I was just like thinking, like, you know, what's the worst ways? What's the best ways? Um, and it was just already in my head um, during the week. So I'd been kind of thinking about it a lot. I mean, the choosing does seem like the, the best way. I mean, die, no, dying in your sleep is is a dream, isn't it, really? Well, yeah. my, my granny's dream always was my uh, my dad's mom. She was a religious woman and she would pray um, to God that she would die in her sleep. That was the, her one wish is that that's how she wanted to go. And uh, and she did. Oh, wow. Um, it was really my, my family always mentioned that because I think it's like a nice way of um, she came back from a May Day celebration and went home and, uh, and died in her sleep. Yeah. Um, so, like, I mean, that is if you want to die a certain way. It's not, you know, it's seeing that through is surely a really nice thing, but I wouldn't want to end my life unless the uh, the alternative was unbearable. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So if I got to 80 
I wouldn't, well, at the moment, I mean, my feeling would be, why is uh, uh, years in my 80 worth less than my years as a child? You know, I feel like, or even, I think age shouldn't really matter unless you're losing your, your capacities and you're unhappy and, and you're going to maybe, you're dying anyway. You know, you're not yourself. Because if, if, if I, if everything else is fine at me or, you know, just, just, just aging naturally and, and things are still kind of working or whatever. You know, any part I, of me is working. Just once my brain is working. Exactly. Yeah. So then I, I can still. Or maybe yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Like even if you're I'm wheelchair bound, but I'm still myself. Anything. Well, then then life is still. Life is still worth it, you know. Yeah. When, when, when there's music and books and animals, then, what, you know, that fact <laughs> would always come first to me. Um, but and friends. Um, but yeah, when you don't have anybody and and yourself, your sense of self is being taken away from you. Well, then I totally would understand why someone would choose that. It would okay. must be the hardest decision to make, though. Yeah. Like, one of the hardest decisions. Considering, I'm, I'm going to ask you another hard question. Ooh. Okay. Get my so, brain working today, Terry. Sorry. <laughs> it's just, it is a really interesting co- conversation because the, yeah. the other part of it, so what you were saying there about kind of choosing and like what you're saying, once you have the capacity, um, you know, the once you have what you consider worthwhile, there's another part of it which I think isn't addressed and we haven't really talked about different cultures too much because it's probably a bigger there's other ways to like we maybe need to talk about that but like for example in Indian culture you know you move in with your parents and there's always like a matriarch or like a a, a granddad or a a granny around and this whole idea of putting uh you know an old person into a home is just it's not it's unconceivable okay Mm -hmm. and do we in Western world and maybe specifically in Ireland, have we devalued the elderly already by the fact that it's like, oh, we just put them in a home. And even when somebody is sick, by a family caring for them and things like children being around them and adults being around them, are we building empathy and being, you know, better people as a society doing that as opposed to just not dealing with it in any way? Um, is that what euthanasia is the, is the ultimate example of or is it the example of humanity so okay so say for example in our culture you know we would have somebody who'd go into we have things like we have homes people would go into homes and and euthanasia could then be an option if something happens to them okay whereas in other cultures elderly people that would live with you and they would die of natural causes Mm -hmm. okay are we running the risk by having euthanasia of people saying, I'm going to choose this? And the person would tend to choose that, say, the majority of the time because of our cultural um, understanding of what being elderly is and the fact that the elderly shouldn't take up our time, that there's no value to that. When in reality, that cross-generational learning, that building of empathy, especially you know, when we have things like the internet and stuff and we see everything that's happening in the world, but actually talking to somebody from, from a different generation, we learn way more because there's a human connection there. That is such a good point. I do feel that we don't take care of our elderly well at all. Um, only from from going to, from from visiting, I used to do some volunteering in um, uh, an old folks home back when I was in school for, in fourth year. And then my mom did that care for the elderly and for the uh, for the disabled and the people you meet in the stories where people have family you know they're there they have all their they're, they're not ill they don't they yeah. have all their mental capacities and they're living in 
some of some of these places are not you wouldn't send your you wouldn't send your uh, your loved ones to them. They're no. uh, they're sad. They're lonely. They're and the people are treated as if they are about to die when they're not. They, you know, um, they they have interests. They want to chat. They have family who will come to visit them once a week. I think, yeah, treating treating yeah death maybe and and uh, deterioration as a bad thing. And you don't want to look at it. And I get it out of my house and I'll put it into this caring facility. And sure, they'll do a better job than I could, rather than actually accepting that this is part of life and we should probably face it in your my own home. Yeah. Because uh, that's, that's a, it's a good point. That's, well, that's something I don't know the answer to because I'm Same. of the mind that it's like, if I get Alzheimer's, put me in a home. But equally, I know that if you put somebody who has any form of cognitive of understanding in an area where nobody has any, they immediately go downhill. And it's like, so you're in a situation where you're choosing all these things. Okay, so you're, you've got a family around you. You're choosing to do that. But like, I learned so much from my granny and I was around quite a lot of old people when I was younger. And I hope that continues. And actually, there's not a lot of ways in kind of, I feel like in modern society that you're around that outside your family. That's very true. Yeah. Because the, the church used to be ours and we don't have to. church. Mm. Yeah, you and I don't go to church. I don't know. Maybe that's a thing that I should look into is volunteering for elderly people. Because yeah, I don't, the only person I'd ever meet is my granny, uh, her relatives, you know, people, family. And yeah. that's the only uh, only people that you'd have in your life that you'd actually get to talk to and it is really rewarding to talk to, to when I would go into um, I think we just went in like once or twice a week after school and you just have a cup of tea and chat and you know to someone and it's just these are people who who deserve to be treated like members of society rather than hidden a hundred percent. And that idea mm. of, so that cross-generational learning. So you know the way we're very, there's polar, polarization between generations. Okay. So yeah. like every generation is so different to the generation beforehand. Whereas when you were younger and you had to be around your granny and your granny, yes, she was racist. My granny was not. But like, say for example, you're in a situation where a granny is racist or she's too uh, religious and it is very frustrating, but you are learning skills by like having those conversations and trying to figure it out. But you're also seeing how people who are raised in different ways can be so definite about their opinion and mm. it can be really frustrating but it's also like fundamental in how we talk to each other and if we That's don't true. have that like a learn like it's it's a learning opportunity to to be able to talk one-on-one and show and love and other. empathy to someone and kill them uh to show love to Not somebody kill you. i shouldn't use that was the wrong phrasing you know what i mean like as in fight <laughs> i mean not not physically i mean debate healthy debates yeah but it, it teaches uh. you empathy and how to be a better person that you can be empathetic and love someone who doesn't agree with fucking everything about that you think you know yeah and that somebody might be flawed and yeah like racist and you know maybe not the type of person that you would want to be but you can still care for them yeah like it's just it's not um and that's my my biggest two things with with euthanasia that would scare me the most is that it is commodified um in a way where it becomes really the only option for people who are poor I feel yeah. like that's I feel like that's almost all, already nearly the case for some people. Um, and then the other and you'll see that in suicide rates for in people who are from disadvantaged areas, that they're much higher. And then also the idea that we devalue people being elderly 
and caring for them and that they're that that I don't know but then equally I think it is the most humane thing to do for somebody who has Alzheimer's I do not see the value and I know that's fucking terrible to say but when you are advanced level um Alzheimer's for me personally I do not want to live if I'm in that situation I do not see the value I still no but I would still um I would still agree with somebody who let's say their partner like let's say Tony got Alzheimer's like how how hard would it be I know it'd be so hard to see him lose his facilities but also you wouldn't want to lose him physically either I know you know when it's your loved one I think I would totally agree with someone keeping keeping someone with them and and not ending their own life you know I think that's you're right also yeah no and I don't think because you're forcing somebody to commit if they're choosing to end their own life. So for example, mm. if Tony had said, I want to end my life, then get Alzheimer's and didn't have capacity. I do think then he should be able to do that. Yeah. But like at the same, but then at the same time, that's ripe for abuse. And that's why it kind of has to happen before that. And that's why, it, because otherwise then you have people saying, oh, he told me he would or, and the, the legal mm. ramifications around that. But like at the same time, you can't turn around to somebody and say, I'm going to judge you if they have Alzheimer's and they they don't because you're forcing them to commit something or, or make ha- something happen. And I get that. It, if it happens, it happens. But. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Fucking yeah. Like hell. at what point if somebody is going through like Deborah on the show, someone's going through um, Alzheimer's like symptoms is what she had or dementia like symptoms. At what point do they lose their um, the right to make that decision? Because, you know, they say you can only really make that decision when you have a si- sound mind legally. You know, so at what point does a sound mind well, thing stop and you can't actually make that decision for yourself? Well, this is where the grey area is because yeah. we we're talking about that, that person, um, the person in the Netherlands, 29, mental illness. Because people would say her symptoms, the, her wanting to die is symptoms of her illness. Um, of her depression and stuff. Right. But then mm. other people would say, but hold on, she's had that illness her whole life and she now knows the situation she's in. Yeah, so she knows more than anybody else what her situation is. But then, that's it, the funny but it's thing not terminal, that. and other people are making the decision. So they they have they have a level of context. Like this is why it's so hard. This is why it is, it is such yeah. a gray area, and why the physical side of things are so much would be so much easier. So that that's the thing of just kind of six months to live or terminal or the idea of that. Like even because is Alzheimer's or is those kind of diseases are they terminal? Because we you know degenerative diseases those kind of things where you can live for 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Do you try and say, okay, well, for you, you know, with Parkinson's, you can live well for 15 years, so you can only do this with this much. And this is, I think, what California, those places have tried to do with six months to live. They've tried mm-hmm. to give this dignity of death. But I actually think it needs to be, for me... Extended. <laughs> extended, yeah, because I, I think if I got Alzheimer's, I would like to choose to do it. I don't give a shit if it takes five or 10 years to get to a certain point. I don't want to be living for five to 10 years with Alzheimer's. In an advanced stage. In an advanced stage, yeah, where, where you're, yeah, in in a state of confusion and uh, or or even terror sometimes. It's know, a slow time. death. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's 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 very sad. So that is uh, it's because six months is, and especially with that that woman who, she said they were, she was given six months to live, and then she lived for three and a half years. And if you have, if you know that you can, you want to make as much of your life for those six months, even if you're only given six months. You know, obviously not everybody would want to do it in euthanasia. They're like, no, I'm going to try and and enjoy six months as long as I have. But for some people, I should. If some, basically, it boils down to if someone says, I don't want to 
go through those six months, the the, the hardest six months, then then let them make their mind up. I think that's the isn't that the end of it? Like people should just have autonomy over their own bodies. Yeah, but then all those other things is how do you stop it being commodified and how yeah. do you stop it being abused, right? And that's <sighs> so me. when it stops becomes it stops becoming a personal issue and more of a societal issue. But even just so there was a really interesting I remember we were talking about that unerased um podcast where they were talking about uh Pray the Gay Away. And they oh, were yeah. saying how in the 50s and 60s, behavioral scientists were approached by gay men who were like, please stop me being gay. And at this stage, you know, it was seen as something that was wrong with people. And these were scientists who were turning around and saying, OK, let me help you. And their core, mm-hmm. they were like, I want to help you. So what I'm just trying to say is, what if your society is telling you that euthanasia is the way to do it? So the societal pressures become you swing in the other direction. The pendulum goes in the other direction. And the society pressures are so strong on you, which is kind of like you don't have any option, but you're still you're still saying it's okay to do. That would be the bit that would scare me the most, because I don't think Mm -hmm. we have many examples of. We have examples of countries which are doing it, but I don't think we know what way society is going to go on it. And when it goes that way, is the damage already done? And how do you recover it? That's very true, because. If if it's within the zeitgeist that euthanasia is good, um, euthanasia is fine. We all accept it, um, and it becomes popular. When when it when it shouldn't be, um, your first choice. It should be, maybe it's something that, you know, was very a very very difficult decision for someone to reach. But if it becomes, you know, very mainstream that we okay euthanasia is legal all over the world, well then surely people will go straight to that as soon as you're diagnosed with something I sure look I'll just do because it's 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 in the culture now and um, when it it really should be the last resort and then are we in a situation where rather than people turn around and say okay a fundamental part of life is just living are we turning yeah. around to say if somebody gets sick that's going to take up medical care that's going to take up their time and resources then nobody cares for them are we just saying well euthanasia yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because other That's healthy people are sick. other people who are choosing it, and then are we at a point where it's like already we're in a situation? Oh. When when that becomes a a discussion, yeah. Hello, can you hear me? Oh yes. Yeah, sorry, my no, my headphones just popped out. Also, I'm freaked out because I just looked at my microphone, and I have like this pop cover in front of it, and it was pointing the opposite direction. Oh wait, so do you think that? Nobody can hear you. And well, I can hear you, so it must be working. It must be okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping. But um, yeah, like, what if you're in a situation where the. Um, where, like, we're literally. Like, we're already in a situation in some places where you have better, better medical care, you live better, you live longer, you can actually survive. And then by mm-hmm. introducing the death side of it, are we just like compounding that? Yeah, well, that's exactly it, isn't it? Because a lot of doctors, the, a lot of doc, well, doctors don't really agree. Not that all doctors don't agree with it. But when I was reading about like pros and cons of, of uh, you know, the euthanasia debate, it, a lot of it's doctors, the Hippocratic Oath, we're meant to be caring for people. We took an oath that we will ensure that, you know, we'll do everything we can to keep people alive. So that does this, does euthanasia go against 
medicine altogether? Yeah. Or is it a, what I feel would be like a humane, like abortion, like a humane part, a very small part of our medical system? And I, I, do, I do get that. I, I understand why by introducing the opportunity of euthanasia, it actually does make things more complex. And I do think it is an element of forcing people are forcing people within a certain industry to deal with it. And I do, th- not industry, but like, I think that that might be unfair. Like for doctors? Yeah, yeah like, it's I, not I fair do, for them. Yeah, like I do think, like, like that was why I thought that abortion in Ireland up until then was just so hard. Like I thought it was terrible how like doctors were being treated because they didn't have an opportunity to cho- make a choice. But also there were times where abortions were happening because they were having to save. Like I thought it was an impossible situation. So anything that would happen would have to be so definitive because mm. if there is gray areas and it's just like oh just be compa- be compassionate like we're already in s- we're so litigious like how would you in any way not have people taking advantage of that i mean people would be sued left right and center because you'd be like you're killing my relative who shouldn't have died yeah that's true some you know yeah, yeah an angry relative would turn on their doctor who administered the uh the care yeah. um yeah I mean it's not it's I think a lot of doctors would refuse to do that themselves and same same with abortions where it's it maybe it shouldn't be up to our current the the current medical staff to have to just oh this is now your job yeah you have to administer you know it should maybe it should be a separate industry altogether not industry a separate um it is know, though, yeah. training yeah. yeah I suppose it is industry if, if if money is passing hands I suppose now question do mm-hmm. you have a second opinion. Ooh, and I have a second opinion. I didn't like my first one. I want a second one. You know how hard it was to find? I mean, I cannot imagine. <laughs> this isn't really particularly about euthanasia, but it's kind of because... So my second opinion was from... Dear Mariella from The Guardian. I kind of go to her a lot. But, and this question is more, not about euthanasia like we were discussing, but the passive euthanasia, which is like turning off a machine. So this is kind of uh, in the ballpark. But yeah, people don't really write to agony ants about, uh, about this issue, it turns out. I, I like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm shocked we could find something. <laughs> I know, same. I was just going to like leave it maybe this week. Yeah. But no, we got one. So I have had a fun and interesting life. At times, I have been enormously successful and surrounded by friends, money to do what I want with, and good times. At other times, I've been poor, alone, and barely able to cope. I have a PhD from one of the world's great universities, and yet frequently feel like a total idiot. I have known intense love, and also intense loneliness. Now, at the age of 50, I look behind me and see a life that is not without its good and decent moments, but, but, looking f- but going forward, I look forward to its ending. If I stop taking the medication I am on, it will probably p- take about three years. Is this stupid? Should I bow out from life when it has nothing more to offer? Um, I mean, I think this is a, that's such a hard question to give to an agony and. Oh, but that sounds like somebody who is depressed. Like you could mm. never make a suggestion that say that would say yes. It would have to be go talk to a professional like that feels just. Oh, God. So this is somebody who's contemplating suicide, basically. Yeah. Like kind of a drawn out suicide. I don't know what medication. I didn't say what medication he's on. But I mean, talking about I've had a great life. I've had bad times. I've had good times. That is a part of that's part of everybody's life. 
So just because I think this, because this person, this guy has the option because he has this medication that is surely, you know, saving his life or is keeping him well. So he has, it's almost like he has this option. It's like, do I press the button or not? Because it's there. It's like, I know that if I stop taking this medication, I'll die in like three years. But yeah, I think that's not a, what, what if after two and a half years, you, you know, take up a new hobby? Or you fall in love or you do find out about something that you really enjoy. And I was too late now because I, three years ago I decided. Yeah, like I think you, it would be like somebody. So somebody's telling you their story from their viewpoint. But you can't mm-hmm. help but feel when he's saying intense loneliness and intense um, love that. I don't feel like you can listen to someone tell that story and not say. This is out of my this is somebody you need to go and talk to a professional about and make sure that this is because to me that sounds like he is struggling with something that is depression yeah like kind of like emptiness yeah and I don't know I don't know why that is and I don't know where it is or what it is but it would be like so somebody turns around they say oh I walked across the road and I got hit by a car and then you would watch a replay of a video and he stepped in front of the car at the last second like I feel as though when someone's telling you a story mm. like that, you can't. All you can hear is the, is the cry for. And like I know that we've just talked about euthanasia instead of people go through all this pain, da 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 da. But like that's after they've gone through a process and you've heard about something, you've heard about everything, and there's mm-hmm. there's structures in place. Whereas this person has just told you a story. You don't know what part of that story is true, but you can feel pain. That's very true, and I think the first thing. The first thing that she did was say that she wasn't qualified to give advice about doing that, but Mm. to talk to, I think she'd suggest that Samaritans and some other, um, some other mental health provider that that she had off the bat recommended. This is something you should talk because these are things that I think we all experience at some point, you know, what is the point of living? And she said, um, Mariella, the advice columnist said, as an atheist, um, Again, she said, I, I'm guessing, but presuming that you rank among our number because this person doesn't mention God or anything when yeah. he talks about dying. She said, as an atheist, I have extremely low expectations of the rest of eternity. And that seems to me a very good reason not to rush into it. <laughs> because if you think that there's something after death, well, then don't, well, then surely don't, don't rush into it. If life still might have some more ups. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a life can be so surprising. So that's when someone says, oh, it's going to take me three years to to for this process to happen yeah um so the amount that happens in three years but the but the, the other side of that and like actually that's okay so that's interesting right so thinking about forget about the to think about the three years thing and think about the na- the age of this gentleman right so or woman he's 50 she's 50 years of age okay mm. so say if he did suffer from a mental illness he grew up in a time where it wasn't recognized mm-hmm. even if he has been treated exceptionally well by all of these different people there is a chance that he has not got all of the help he needs yeah and I I think probably a higher chance than other people because of his age is that a fair I feel like that's a fair comment a 50 year old man yeah I mean I don't yeah I mean a 50 year old man in the UK I presume he doesn't say where he's from but if it's to the Guardian I'm sure it's in the UK or the British Isles and he like I, I, I'm not going to speak for every man in Ireland, but I don't for my my dad has never been to a counsellor to talk about his feelings. I don't think he's even talked to 
his wife about his feelings. It's not something that, and luckily he's a very, um, he's a very mentally well man, you know, my dad's mm. a very happy man. But if somebody was, was, was different than that, you know, if someone did have uh, mental problems or, or depression and stuff that they had no one to talk to, the fact that he wrote into Vice Columnist about it, reached out to her. Exactly. Like maybe just speak volumes. Even the fact that he said that he had a doctorate from a very important university, there's a sense there of um, legitimizing what he's saying as though it's like context for I know what I'm doing that I'd be really skeptical of. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I'm smart. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, because there was there wasn't necessarily a I have tried to solve the highs or the lows or there's no mention of that. So I Mm. don't know. I would. Yeah, I just it's just a, it's just an I find that one actually really an interesting question. So when I saw it, I was like, oh, OK, this is interesting because it is that because who knows how, where this man is now? Um, mm. But it's just, it's a uh, such a gray area for for this guy who maybe isn't even suffering, but he in his own way, he feels like he is or he feels like I, he said, I've had a good life and I don't think life has anything more to offer me. Which is just such a final thing to say. Yeah, I just don't, I don't believe, I don't know, I don't believe that. I don't, that to me sounds like, um, yeah, I feel yeah. like, yeah, no. Like obviously have no, would not have the ability to like say that, but just say, go talk to somebody who can, who can actually help. Because I, you know, those kind of things, that level, like that level of importance on mental health and giving people autonomy is so important, but also respecting that if somebody so somebody suddenly smacked their head and then started being violent there would be allowances made Mm. and the exact same thing should be done Mm. with mental health and I know there has to be robust structures around it but I wouldn't listen to that and think oh automatically everything he he says to me is completely what the reality is exactly this this is the this is the kind of um, outcry from somebody who just has a is suffering from a, a bad mental health mm. and maybe disorder not, or spell. Yeah, and maybe he's not. But like, I just that would be my automatic would be like, don't. And I know that. Yeah, I yeah, don't, don't exactly. Just she don't. um she ended the her advice um which was just really sensitively handled. I thought uh, Mariella from the Guardian, but her um her last paragraph I'll read to you because I thought it was lovely. Um, none of us is indispensable, but each of us is totally unique. And as such, until your last breath, your contribution to the world is essential. Death, I'd argue, unless each day is merely suffering, actually has very little to offer when you compare it to the myriad possibilities of life. So like death won't offer you anything. What life will offer you so much more unless your life is just suffering. So maybe that is when you're talking about euthanasia, these people are suffering. Mm. And, uh, and, And that's why it should be allowed for them. Yeah. Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> and exhale. Actually, sweating, but like, I'm, it's, it's kind of like I got a little mental workout right now because it's something that it's it's such um, it's such an interesting thing when when you start saying this stuff out loud. How do I really feel about death? Yeah, and, and about I, life, and about elder care. Yeah, and about mental health services. It's just. Yeah, it's really made me like, because I, I feel so comfortable saying yes to euthanasia. And it just really made me think about it and the realities mm. of it. It's so, it's so much more nuanced than just 
yeah, what you say on the surface and you're talking about, yeah, how, but euthanasia in relation to how we treat our elders, how we treat our mentally ill, mm-hmm. how we treat our disabled. Yeah. Because, you know, that that comes into it also. It's, it's uh, I did a poll on Twitter today. I was like, lads, I'm doing a podcast about uh, euthanasia today and I want to see everyone thinks. But I said, I think I know what you'll all say, but humor me. So it was just <laughs> a poll and it was pro-euthanasia or uh, anti-euthanasia. I just wanted to see how, where people fell and um, 100% were pro-euthanasia. So I, I kind of knew that was going to be the outcome, especially with my people who follow me on Twitter are just people like me so yeah. <laughs> um, you know um, but I think maybe the medical community and religious community would be uh, good people to have on the the anti euthanasia debate side just because I think that they have a different point of view than um, us lay lay people well some I think yeah and some medical people are pro it because they're being kept they're being forced to keep people alive they don't want you know that they know what they're going through but like mm. yeah like the the, the thing about it that really made me think about it is just that we are in a society that devalues the elderly and that used to not be the case because naturally within societies they didn't have they, they were in your life more they were pre- they were more present and we mm-hmm. had to be around elderly people more and it does uh, that's something that really hit 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 home for me was just god we're in a society where we kind of glorify youth we glorify power and oh we glorify God. like independence and that kind of thing. And I just. Yeah, like how help. sick are you of 30 under 30 lists? Like, oh, my God, why is being under 30 such an achievement? Like, show me an 80 over 80 list. OK, you're saying that, but I genuinely teared up when you were named as 30 under 30 most powerful people <laughs> in our people leading the way. I was like, I'm oh. so proud. I think that's Creative. so fucking cool. <laughs> that was actually really important for me, though, because I was it was the uh, RTE was like, yeah, like culturally um relevant people or something like that yeah, right? under, i think it was under 30 and like when i saw that i was happy obviously but then also really annoyed because i'm having an ongoing issue with revenue at the moment about um how my work isn't it doesn't have any cultural merit in other <sighs> words um to receive artist exemption on my books which the is fuck kind of like is wrong with them yeah i mean this is the arts council talking now so don't even get me started uh, sorry and uh, uh, uh. This is Cultural a council, merit. sorry, this is a council and this is a whole government structure that completely discounts the commerciality of the art world. And that's the reason yeah. why we're losing all of our creative people. Try I'm gone. Yeah. yeah because because it is like, oh, oh well, because uh, people enjoy it too much, it's too popular. So then, well, Trevor and Bono has art exemption, so how come I can't get it? it that's, that's completely wrong. Like, it's completely wrong. If you want to actually keep creative people in Ireland, rather than just throwing money at situations which are fucking passion product pro- projects for individual mm. people, it should be putting into commercial structures. So we have both. Like, yeah, that's why exactly, there's no like, art the market in Ireland. There's no fucking art my market. my life is art, yeah. It's bollocks. Because I think that what that is the grey area and that is that I'm an illustrator and it's for children's books and my children's books are non-fiction. So how can that be art? Do you know, that's kind of the Arts Council, you know, they want to see me throwing some paint at a wall and I'm, you know. Do you know what you should do? We Come should, on. once a year, you should have almost like a fake gallery show. And hang all my books up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you should. I mean, you hundred percent should. And not only that, I'm pretty sure looking into it that there's like things that you could do. You could put it in like a public space. You could do things where you could just kind of kind of turn around to them and say, "Just because I've figured out a way of subsidizing myself without getting a grant from you, exactly, does yeah. not mean that I am not 
a creative artist. Yeah, well, they said, yeah, um, the two points. So I had to then appeal um, um, in the process of appealing the decision. Because mm-hmm. when I told all the other illustrators I know who do kids books, they were like, what the fuck? It was so easy for me. I just sent it the application. Just because you're making grant. money. That's all. Um, and I, I think it was the nonfiction thing is what's kind of gotten them confused. Because again, my books are educational. So is this a school book? Like, no, it's not. It's a fucking school book. But also they um, are. It, I know they're nonfiction, Cathy, but they are yeah. fictional because it's like... You're telling nonfiction stories in a kind of creative, interesting way. It's not like other people tell it in the same way. That's insane. That's like, so if yeah. somebody does a fucking painting and being like, it's inspired by Little Red Riding Hood. Is that not fiction? Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating. And then I basically had to spend, I think it was like fucking days doing this application to the appeals office, which is like, basically have to write to a bunch because the people who are going to be reading the appeal won't be the Arts Council. It'll be people in revenue. Basically, I have to outline how I think my work has cultural merit. Like, write a fucking thesis on that. Sorry, so if, you get another, if you get another appeals process, you should look at other people who've got... Did you name people who've got fucking the exemption? Because you can find that out through revenue as well. Oh, it's on their website. Yeah. There's lists and lists of people. Everyone. Um, <laughs> and people who have exemptions on, you know, making stings for radio shows. People have exemptions for, you know... um. Like like cookbooks and shit. Fucking happy pears are on there. Like, do you know what I mean? I fuck, li- listen, we've got a yeah. corporation rate, okay? <laughs> do not come at me with that. That makes me so angry. Yeah, that is outrageous. Oh yeah, I'm very frustrated. And Aoife Dooley was going through the same thing. So we had each other to thank, but then she got a letter only a few weeks ago saying that she had been granted it. So now I'm just waiting for mine, fucking hopefully. But I, see, my appeal's already sent off and, you know, in process, so. That just has to be seen through. I don't like bureaucracy, Terry. I'm not, I'm a creative. I don't want to be filling out forms and having to like reference state law. But I had to do that. It was awful. Well, listen, if you want, um, if it doesn't go through, if you want us to like start a little bit of a riot, maybe storm the revenue so office. For that. Yeah. And also like, I want my books back because I sent them loads of books as part of your original <laughs> you application. keep them and give them to people for Christmas. Oh, they do. Because I had to send them my initial book. My, for the first time, when I applied initially, it was 2016. Irelandopedia had just come out. And uh, so that's, I've just been appealing it since then. Like, because the amount of books I've done since then, it's like, I don't want to have to keep doing this because I plan on this being my career forever. So, and if I'm entitled to exemption on artistic books, which is what I, I'm, you know, it's, it's frustrating. It's like trying to explain to someone, but the, I'm the exact person who's meant to be protected by this. Anyway. So this year I just had to pay all my taxes and then, hope, you know, when I get my grant, like for the last few years, I've just been paying it. And when I do get my grant, my exemption, I'll just have to apply to get that money back. Which that is sucks, insane. Oh yeah, I'm not ready for this. No one teaches us this shit in, in college. Stop. I actually met the head of glass of NCAD in, at a show and she was kind of saying to me, she was like, uh, or at an opening, she was like, oh, I would love you to come down and talk about professional practice. And I was like, no, you don't. Because I'll be like, <laughs> it is absolute bollocks. People don't get yeah. taught how to do a tax return. So I'll absolutely oh, oh mince into them. But maybe it's changed. You see, maybe it's got better. Um, Hopefully. But like, I'd, I, yeah, I feel like me talking about it, it's like one of those things where it's like, oh God, yeah, I'd pretty, I'd kick off, I think, a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, the, I wanted to speak to someone on the phone as common sense and just tell them what's going on. But trying to get someone to talk to on the phone and revenue is like fucking... It's it's rough. It's hard. They, it's like I think there's like probably one person in the office, and she's doing all the work. But 
you know, and then my head like cardboard cutouts around the room. It just seems like there's no one in there for me to talk to. Oh, God. <laughs> Home Alone style. Yeah. Or like a Hermé Aiden's birthday party. It wasn't Aiden and Rob's. You had cardboard cutouts of uh, <laughs> Hugh McGregor and, and Hugh Grant. Two yeah. very good cardboard cutout choices. Um, listen. That was mm-hmm. a fabulous episode. I feel better now that we've had a little chat afterwards, just giving each other a little bit of a like, it's okay. It's like the equivalent to Chip and Z's grooming each other. Um, but yeah, I better go do some wedding jobs. So you're doing wedding jobs today. I'm going to go to the Stiedlec Museum. Amazing. See some art, get inspired, you know, uh, earn some cultural merit from myself. Oh, fuck them. <laughs> I know, fuck them. And um, maybe get a nice meal. Do. I'm, star- I'm actually it. starving. Um. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Okay, I'll talk to you soon, okay? Thank I you will, for that. Uh, I'll end on a quote though, yeah? Yeah, From go for it. Dr. Jack Kevorkian. Oh, who? Come back, rest in peace. So Jack Kevorkian says, My aim in helping the patient was not to cause death. My aim was to end suffering. It's got to be decriminalised. Ooh. Here, here, Jack. Yeah. Actually, we keep talking about things that we want decriminalised. We should do a weed one next. Definitely. Let's do weed yeah. next. Oh, that'd be, that'd be fun. Okay. Weed next. See you later, guys. <laughs> See ya. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.